1: Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up today, Barmy Barometers. What can pants, packed lunches and lipstick tell us about the state of the nation? It's one of my favourite features we've done in a while. Before that, Night at the Marriott, India Night and James Marriott on weather... Outgoing MPs will make good TV presenters. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can listen to me live on Times Radio, on your DOB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. It's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. But first, as we always do on Politics Without the Boring Bits, on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Harriet Harman thought the gaze of Margaret Thatcher would turn her baby to stone. So I literally saw a, a loo and dashed into the loo in order that she would not even look at my baby. We learned that Labour's Lucy Powell and Tory Minister Penny Morden the last people in Britain to do the Tory party are like the traitors joke.
2: It seems the traitors sit amongst them still, secretly planning their next kill. The evil plotters trying to avoid banishment so they can win the prize. So can she reveal herself today? Because we all want to know. And I will make the case that we are faithfuls on this side of the
1: house. We know that Keir Stommer met a man at Iceland, but what was his name? This week, I met one of the employees at Iceland in Warrington. Phil. People like Phil. Phil and millions of people like him. Phil and Phil. 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 I actually didn't expect him to be laughing at Phil. We learn that Tory MP Desmond Swain's got an idea to deal with fly tippers. The penalties are insufficient. If offenders were garroted with their own intestines, there'd be fewer of them. (laughs) We learned that your keyboards won't work if it's soaked in coffee. We've
3: got a tale of two
1: nations. What's happened? Just not the coffee all over the computer. Oh no, okay, you clear
4: that up. And we've got we're looking at a tale of two nations. Uh, uh, Because of course, yesterday. (laughs) Mopping up all it's over the floor. Oh, true. my goodness, he really has gone and Cut
1: done the the in the keyboard. out of the keyboard. Yeah, oh, oh no. Yeah, it didn't work. Uh, but the main thing we learned this week is that Rishi Sunak's 36-hour fast is not a 36-hour fast. It's not totally nothing, but largely nothing. Yes. And then pick Just, it back do up. you have and the and odd nut? I do have the odd nut, exactly, that kind of thing. I yeah. knew it. <laughs> I knew it. That's not a fast. It's a farce, That's what it is. The odd nut. And green apples. And that is what we learned this week. Now, time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott.
5: I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop frantically bashing away at my column.
1: Ah, we say hello to India Nights. Good morning. Hello. Ah, we say, hello. We say hello to James Marriott. Good morning. Hello, James. Uh, we will, uh... Now, India, I was messaging you on Friday night, because obviously on the show last week we were talking about the traitors. James still hasn't caught up. I'm three episodes behind James. still, I
5: know, it's really embarrassing.
1: <sighs> but you know you know what happened. I about... know, I have the spoiler. I know who won, yeah. which is depressing me. Well, we'll, uh... You need to, we can catch up. And then we're going to go, James is very keen. Will you come into London and go bowling one day, India?
3: Yes, I will. Yeah, good. I promise I will. We'll
1: get that in the diary. James is very keen to go body. Now, um, uh, you, I hope you've, you've now seen this. I'm really keen to get your take on this. The Conservative Party have taken a clip of Keir Starmer, noticed that he uses a phrase popularised by John F. Kennedy, and then they've used it to mock him. And I'm just quite interested in whether or not you think it's good campaigning. Here is the clip.
6: Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: A target... We set out not because it's easy, but precisely because it is hard. <laughs> it then goes on to do the "I knew Senator," "I knew Senator," uh, "Senator," "I knew Jack Kennedy." Uh, You're no Jack Kennedy. Do you think this works, India?
3: No, I think it's really, really silly. First of all, comparing um, Keir Starmer to JFK—you know, JFK is a revered and adored person that people still, both in America and here, look back on with longing and regret. So that's a mistake. Also, the words words in question in the phrase are easy and hard. These are not, you know, (laughs) these are words that everybody uses all the time. Some things are easy, some things are hard. They're not, they're not, it's not a kind of remarkable, memorable phrase using kind of Baroque language. Literally, the words are easy and hard. So the comparison doesn't even work, and it's just silly. I just don't know who it's aimed at, James.
5: Yeah, I I guess, I mean, it's obviously completely stupid. I have some sympathy, because anyone who's ever tried to make a joke on social media knows how difficult it is. (laughs) And (laughs) I think, especially political parties, you're trying to kind of tap into this slightly feral energy, this kind of zeitgeisty, fast, sarcastic um, way of speaking, and I think it's very hard to get right. And, yeah, I mean, that clip shows every single possible way you can get it wrong. It's kind of clunky, there are too many layers to it, it's kind of flattering. It's it's a mess, but I sort of, I'm also glad that I'm not someone sitting in, you know, Conservative headquarters, you know, some kind of 22-year-old intern, desperately
1: trying to work out how to Mm. say something sassy about the Labour Party on Twitter. It does have all the hallmarks, really, of, of being something that looks like a joke. It's a bit like jokes you get in the House of Commons. It has all the the rhythm and component yeah, parts actually, of the joke, but actually, it's still isn't. not a joke.
5: And I was kind of thinking—you can imagine—kind of everyone gathering around this guy's computer at you know Conservative Party headquarters, and they're going, "Yeah, that that
1: works, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah, it's good. That I think that yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> yeah, put it. Oh, oh no, it doesn't work at all. Everyone hates it um, because then they they also uh, so the the latter bit uh, where they put take a clip. So this is from the nineteen eighty eight vice presidential debates. And uh, they said, um, uh, with the guy saying "Senator, I serve for Jack Kennedy." I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you'll know Jack Kennedy. But they've put um, a photo of Keir Starmer over, I think Dan Quayle's face, because it was um, Lloyd Bernstein who said said it. And I just think, who who? There's a lot. You need a lot of assumed knowledge. I feel like I can almost visualize the person knows. who made this meme. Um, sorry. Yeah, it's a very weird thing. It's a very weird thing. And I suppose, ultimately, if you're going to make a joke, you need to, particularly, you know, a satirical joke, you need to know who the target is. And if, yeah. if you're not careful...
5: People you... with, slightly without a sense of humour, who know a little bit too much about politics, and are on Twitter too much, is the
1: target. But that's like... Not that many but people. The, exactly, the only people who know that, will be able, will see it as paying Keir Starmer a compliment. Yeah, is a, all a, all what all a stuff. mess. Uh, now, James, uh, <laughs> let's talk about your column. Uh, private school posturing ignores the poor. Obviously, has been a lot about private schools uh, lately. And we had the uh, some YouGov polling four times later this week uh, saying massive support for Labour's plan to get private schools to pay VAT, uh, including, I mean, sizable support amongst those who went to private schools themselves.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, re- it's really interesting to see this. And I think, I, I, have, I think the dial is kind of moving on this issue. There's a really interesting piece um, by Melissa Dean in The Times... Uh, I think last week where she pointed out that as private schools become more expensive and they'll only become more expensive with you know when VAT is added to them they kind of get a little further out of the reach of the kind of aspirational middle classes you know it's hard doctors and lawyers children don't go to private schools so much anymore and as it becomes a kind of richer and richer thing um you know I think it becomes more of a handy political target for labor because fewer people have that will have their kids there or will think they can aspire to have their kids there. I think it's a really interesting time in that debate. Um,
1: uh, and, and what do you think is the right approach then, politically? Do you think the Labour Party are making a mistake to be seen? Because, you know, lots of people have pointed out, even if they do pay VAT, you know, it's not going to build many hospitals, the money they raise from it, or whatever it is they say they're going to do with it. It's it's more of a symbolic thing than necessarily revenue raising. Yeah. It, do you think it's good or bad politics?
5: I think, I mean, I think your your poll shows that it seems pretty good politics. People, yeah. people are into it. And it's one of those kind of base-pleasing that You know, if you're a Labour voter, that's... Yeah. Or a lot of Labour voters, that's precisely the kind of thing they'll be into. And, yeah, I think especially that point Melissa Dean made is is a good one, that they're becoming better targets, I think, because of the way they're changing. What do you think of this,
1: uh, India? I thought
3: James S. Collins was so, so good. I mean, it always is. But Aww. I thought...
5: that's
3: not like I thought... That that <laughs> I thought the thing about um, uh, private schools embracing wokeness was such an interesting point because social justice used to be mainly about economic inequality. It used to be about the fact that there existed people who were unacceptably poor. And now social justice has become about changes that the elite can really easily accommodate, like issues around race and gender. You know, you have you have foreign students at your school and people can use whatever changing room they want. So, so, so you're polishing your halo. So then you end up in this really bizarre situation where social justice campaigners and elites are, end up being on the same side, which is obviously ridiculous and which I thought James expressed very well in his piece. Yeah, it's interesting, but
1: like what the motivation for that is, is it, is it genuine curiosity about the world or is it guilt?
5: Yeah, well, I think I'm just, I'm sort of so skeptical of it. And I think a lot of it is like kind of virtue signaling, um, trying to imagine that even though, you know, you're obviously very privileged if you're at Eton or whatever, you're, you're doing well. My all, One of my all-time favorite, I don't know, I kind of love hypocrisy. and One of my all-time favorite quotes <laughs> is um, on the website of Eton, which says, "Eaton believes in equal opportunity for everyone, irrespective of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or social demographic background. To Which the answer is kind of like, Well, it sort of doesn't. That's kind of the point of Eton. And, I don't know, it always... It's kind of one of my ultimate bugbears is always the most exclusive places seem to be the places that are proclaiming their inclusivity most loudly. And private schools in recent years have really got into this. I've got friends who work in private schools who've got these kind of quite amazing stories. You only have to go on any private school website to discover all this stuff about how inclusive we are. And it's like, no, you're not. You charge, you know, 50 grand a year for your fees. And... I was kind of saying in the column, I don't know, I'm not sure this is the way that private schools are going to exactly endear themselves when we all start talking about them and is it right? And, you know, should they, are they really charities that they're all going on about how marvellously equitable and diverse and inclusive they are? I don't know if that's the right strategy for them politically.
1: It's weird, isn't it? Because the conversation about uh, private schools, you know, the fact there's a debate about, you know, are they like charities or isn't it lovely they let some of the poor kids use their tennis courts during the summer, or whatever. Um, in a way, we just don't talk about it. You know, we talk about private healthcare. It's just a question of, it's fine. You've got more money. You're jumping the queue. Let's not pretend there's anything other than that. But somehow, the, you know, this, this moral dimension, I know they're doing some nice things and they've, you know, they've, they've let someone use the squash courts or whatever. So, somehow that sort of changed. But it was it is just what it is. It's people who've got the money giving their kids a leg up against people who don't.
3: Yeah, and there's no way of spinning that. That is what it is, and I, I understand. I understand. You know, I think the very difficult. I think the reason why the debate even exists in these terms is that, of course, people have children. People want what they perceive to be the best for their children, and sometimes they persuade themselves that that involves paying school fees you know and that's not that's not a bad it's not bad it's not wicked to want what you think is the best for your children so it becomes really really kind of tangled up but i think the schools themselves presenting themselves as these kind of bastions of equality when most people can't afford to pay for a child to go to one for a week let alone a term or, or or several years is is sort of bonkers the idea that they're these shining beacons and they're a really good vibe, and everybody gets on, and it's all lovely. and Anybody can come to our school? No, they can't. You know, they should spell it out a bit <laughs> That's more. the point. That's the point. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. The po- yeah, whole point is that not everybody is can it's come exclusivity, to our
1: school. and what and you're paying you're, the reason you're paying is because you're getting a premium. You are getting smaller classes and better education. Yeah, and better you're result. getting something exclusive, not That's inclusive. The point. Yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. I, I just think always a little humility wouldn't go amiss if you're educating very rich people rather than boasting about how virtuous you are. Yeah.
1: Very good. Right. Well, we've sorted that out. <laughs> <laughs> right now, uh, former minister George Freeman uh, has said he was standing down for uh, as a. Well, he said he had to stand down as a minister because he couldn't afford his mortgage payments, his ministerial salary of hundred eighteen thousand pounds. Because you get you get about eighty five as a, as an MP, then you get more if, if you're a minister. Now, apparently, he fancies himself as the next Michael Portillo.
6: I
7: love riding American railroads.
1: <laughs> Whoever he is. <laughs> <laughs> Formerly of this parish, of course, on Time 20. Uh, now, um, apparently he wants to fu- seek out a uh, career as a TV documentary star. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with George Freeman, which I find uh, hard to believe, he's famous on this programme, at least, for this unforgettable description of Liz Truss.
7: She's no woke um, warrior. She's more of a uh, liberty lioness. <laughs>
1: So, uh, but can anyone just become the next Michael Portillo? Does George Freeman have what it takes? Uh, Let's bring us the conversation, Sunday Times TV critic, Helen Stewart. Hi, Helen. Hello there, how are you doing? I'm very good, I'm very good. Do we need more ex-politicians on the telly? Uh,
8: Well, I mean, it's hard, I think. A lot of them underestimate how difficult it is to present television, but... This crop seemed to underestimate how hard they make our skin crawl, I think. (laughs) Trying to think of one politician amongst the current bunch that would be pleasant to see on the television, would be pleasant to meet. I was was very much struggling.
1: Um, do you uh, Are you excited, James, by the prospect of lots of ex-politicians on your goggle box? <laughs> I find it
5: marginally more exciting than the prospect of lots of current politicians on television shows, which yeah. I think is not, not the most wonderful trend of our time that you can be in Parliament and also, you know, hosting your GB News show. But, uh, no, I mean, I don't think our current crop of politicians are distinguished for their charisma, especially, are they? Do you have any ideas? <laughs> you know...
3: The-
8: the The Parliament to Portillo kind of pipeline is no longer as smooth running as it used to be. I mean, do you remember, 2003 it was, Portillo made his documentary when he parented or, you know, a bunch of kids and had to do it on dole money. That was 2003. Yeah. Matt, Matt Hancock would dream of such a transition nowadays, right?
1: I mean, So, yes, yeah, so he lost his seat in 97 uh, and then didn't start doing the telly properly until... Till two thousand and three, and actually, it was you know, year, year, even more years before he ended up doing the dwellers. I suppose more recently, Ed Balls is probably the most obvious.
5: Yeah, and I don't find Ed Balls marvelously charismatic. I don't <laughs> fully get the Ed Balls transition. I have to say, I find his I find his podcast a little uh, dry. in his G you know, is it Good Morning Britain appearance? I'm not yeah, well, it's because be it's because you enjoy Richard, to how
1: to win an election so much, James. You don't well, need nothing, Balls' well,
5: and I know. Well, yeah, that's nothing. Nothing as charismatic as that. I think there's um. One interesting point is that I think politics is more brutal now, and it's much harder to survive a political career seeming like a cuddly, friendly public figure. Because obviously, you know, Michael Portillo didn't get, you know, was, didn't have the best reputation. Hmm. But I think even now, just the abuse and the, you know, scepticism that's levelled at politicians means it's very hard to then become a lovable, charismatic TV person afterwards. And there's
1: a difference in here between notoriety and popularity.
3: Yeah, there is. I think what's really strange about this is announcing that you want to make TV programmes about nature and the environment. It's kind of, that's not how it works. You know, you don't just say, it's like a child saying, I want to be an astronaut. I mean, you you don't, just, you don't just manifest the thing by saying it. You may be, I don't know, I don't know what you do. Talk to some production companies, get representation, you know, write out proposals for things. You don't just sort of announce it, and then, because you wish it to be true, expect it to become true quite quick. I mean, I don't know, it's, the whole thing is really weird to me.
1: Well, listen, Angel,
3: he's got a Substack
1: stack uh, where he's been talking about how he needs more money and how he, you know, and this is this is where he wants to go. To. So maybe you should be using your Substack to pit for, pitch, pitch for, for documentary work.
3: I don't want documentary work, thank you very much. <laughs> I'll a no. And also, the, the other thing, as Helen was saying, is... TV presenting is skilled, you know. The skill is in making it look easy and natural, but it isn't particularly easy or natural for most people. So, yeah, I find the whole thing a bit baffling. I mean,
1: to be fair to him, Helen, he is actually mm-hmm. interested in the thing he wants to make documentaries on. So, you know, Michael Portillo clearly has an interest in the trains and travelling around, and it's, he's not sort of faking it. So it's not, mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, Matt Hancock wanted to be on everything because he's Matt Hancock. That actually, an interest in the ocean space and and the life sciences might be.
8: Right, but you don't get a career out of it. You get a one off documentary. Alan Johnson made a documentary about the post office, missed <laughs> quite a big story, I think, <laughs> uh, a few years ago. Um, and who else? Uh, John Prescott has made a documentary on the class system. Portillo made a documentary on uh, the Spanish Civil War, right? But to, to parlay a career mm. out of these sorts of things, it's it really, Portillo is, is quite singular, if you think about it. And do you know why? I think it's because he's handsome. <laughs> he is a handsome devil, and that does make a difference. He's got to go out and meet people, he's prepared to make a fool of himself, get dressed up. He's very charismatic and a kind of peach yeah. blazer.
1: India Knight and James Marriott there, and of course you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airports. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
9: The big
6: thing.
1: Inflation, GDP, interest rates are all well and good. But can what we buy, eat, and listen to tell us more about the health of society than any of these things? And tell us if the times we're living in are good or bad. Good times, bad times. You want to- Lipstick.
4: They are a sort of a treat that we can afford just about.
0: Pack lunches.
1: <laughs> Skirt lengths.
4: We're in a real trousers moment and so we're actually kind of in uncharted territory.
1: Skyscrapers,
4: pants. Every man I know is still wearing pants that he bought about twenty-five
6: years ago. Or music. People are identifying with these real life struggles that, that people are singing about in their music.
1: Give us the answers to the great economic questions of our times. Or is it all just a load of cobblers? Yeah, we're talking barmy barometers. Are they any good? Here to guide us through all the barmy barometers of the Times' is science editor, Tom Whipple. Uh, Tom, uh, we're going to talk through some theories about certain indicators of how the uh, economy is doing well or badly. Are you ready? I am indeed ready. Very good. Okay, let's start with... Tom, what is the lipstick index? This is the idea, I think, first propounded
7: by Leonard Lauder of Estee Lauder. I I didn't realise that the CEO of Estee Lauder would be called Leonard. Um, But he said in 2001 they had spotted a 11% surge in lipstick sales that correlated with the tech crunch. And their idea was that lipstick is something that you can buy that is cheap, but a luxury and a way of pampering yourself when there aren't many other ways to pamper yourself. So in some sense, this would counterintuitively be predictive of a recession.
1: Okay, so is it really a thing? Who better to ask than The Times' fashion editor, Harriet Walker?
4: Yeah, I think it holds up actually the lipstick index that people buy smaller things when times are tougher. I think actually Keir Starmer referenced something in his conference speech about people
1: having little treats. That's what this cost of living crisis does. It intrudes on the little things that we love, whittles away at our joy, days out, meals out, holidays. The first things that people cut back on, picking up a treat in the supermarket just to put it back on the
3: shelf
4: but definitely buying lipstick buying makeup you can see sales of cosmetics have gone up recently as people put the big ticket items back but still need something to to buoy themselves with a bit
1: and in your line of work do you see it in sort of i don't know the advertising or the products that you're being pitched instead of i don't know what it would be massive expensive handbags are do you see brands shifting into smaller cheaper items
4: Well, the the luxury market is, is such a weird one that when times are tough, actually, those top range items do really, really well, because especially recently, rich people have really only got richer, the uber rich I'm talking about, really. So prices of handbags have gone up, but it's always really been at those designer brands. Sales have been underpinned always by the likes of us getting lipsticks, perfumes, which actually don't feel that cheap right now, but they are a sort of a treat that we can afford just about.
1: So, we've seen that since 2020, cosmetic sales were going up. They peaked in 2022, and now they're coming down again. So, what does that tell us? (laughs) I'm asking Harriet Mm. as the fashion editor. Is a recession coming?
4: I think it tells us that everyone is hard up. I think it shows that people were buying more last year, smaller but more last year, and this year they're just trying to recoup where they can.
1: So, Tom, with your science hat on... Oh, well, so Boffin's white coat. Um, do you think this one holds up? I've been looking to see if there's good empirical data. I'm not
7: sure there is. I think there's an element of a just-so story where we are backfitting facts to fit, fit theories. I think if Estee Lauder, or indeed Leonard, Leonard, the glamorous Leonard of Lauder, had uh, seen that lipstick sales had gone down in a recession, he would have said, well, you know, the first thing that goes is luxury products you've got nothing <laughs> else to spend money on. Um, I'm not sure this one... Uh, I, I'm prepared to be convinced, and I'm prepared to see a study that somehow disambiguates big-ticket luxury items from little-ticket luxury items and shows that little tickets are going up. But uh, I, I do think there might be an element of us sort of squinting at shapes
1: and seeing a pattern. Okay, that's the lipstick theory. Next... packed lunches tom what can we read into people's lunches being an indicator of the economy well this is the exact opposite
7: of the lipstick theory this is you have a daily luxury which is the office so the, the office canteen lunch um and i'm sure as you are aware our office canteen lunch at the times has Uh, very, very slowly but steadily been creeping up and is feeling more and more of a luxury. And under those circumstances, there is a very easy way to make up the difference, to find an immediate saving on cost, which particularly when multiplied across five days a week can be significant, and that's to bring in your packed lunch. And I think anecdotally, I've spotted a lot more people queuing at the microwaves in the Times canteen than queuing at the the sort of poke bowl
1: stand. (laughs) I don't really know. Apparently it's poke, isn't it? Oh, is it yeah apparently <laughs> so i learned the last time it was there somebody told me it'll was... oh, it turn out that's wrong so uh le- what can we learn from the packed lunch index here is the retail analyst kate harcastle
9: i think it's really evident that many of us are still struggling still budgeting and still trying to find a way of making it through the pay week let alone the pay month. and i think that we've gone back to the tradition of taking a lunchbox with us so we're not tempted by meal deals that, you know, have really gone up over the years, haven't they, Matt? You know, £3 meal deals, now £5 in some instances. And if you do that a few times a week, it really makes an impact. But I think there's more under the hood of this, really. If you start to look at it, many people were obviously at home for a period during COVID and they learned to really embrace cooking, batch cooking, really getting to grips with the kitchen. And I think perhaps what I would have taken as a lunchbox to work maybe 20 years ago, which certainly wasn't enticing, is a very different proposition these days.
1: I suppose you're right that we've seen if you're going into the coffee shops or the supermarkets and those meal deals have really crept up. Does that then become a vicious circle? If fewer people are buying, it, are we going to see those prices actually going up even more because they need to make more money out of the people who are buying that stuff?
9: Well I think a lot of the retailers have tried to take the pain out by making the, can I call them exotic Um you tend to have more options now there's different healthier bites included, it's not all about a white bread sandwich and a packet of crisps but um I think You've had to see a rise in prices because we've seen that food inflation everywhere. There will be an absolute limit to it. There will be a peak as to what people find find appropriate and and possible to pay out. But the rest of it in your mindset is going to start equating that to other things you can buy. And this is what we've seen this flood of social media in terms of education in bite-sized chunks on how to run your own budget and i think that idea that we compare now a price point to something else i can get for that is very different so that splurge spending is definitely very emotional and i'm not quite sure how much joy people really get out (laughs) of maybe buying one of those ready-to-go lunches. I think they can spend 5 £6 pounds in very different ways and get a better deal for them.
1: So last year, workers brought 57 million more homemade lunches into the office compared to 2022. I think all 57 million was standing in the queue for the microwaves in our canteen. Microwaves! <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> is this a trend, it's here to stay, or if the economy picks up, will people be leaving the Tupperware at home and splashing out again on a porn sandwich?
9: Every January, I think you're obsessed with porn sandwiches, to be honest, but every January, <laughs> uh, you will see people uh, with their New Year resolutions making a difference. I'm going to take a pat lunch to work. I'm going to batch cook. And as we then see the year start to transform and the better weather gets here, people's needs shift. But no, actually, some of this is a different mindset. And it's here to say it's about healthier eating well-being being being in control of what you eat nutrition these are all trends we're seeing come through in a decent amount of size and scale so i think some of it is a very different mindset there's a cost benefit but actually it's perhaps uh, like you said a much more exciting lunch and you're quite right about those microwave cues when i go into offices they seem to be out the door (laughs) and the smells are really incredible
1: Hardcastle, retail there. So, Tom, are we saying that there's something in this, or is? It, I mean, the the cues, the cues of the microwaves in Times Towers are insane.
7: Yeah, I, I think look, this is, to my mind, a lot more plausible. Lipstick index. There is some current data, um, as we as we heard, there's 57 million extra at lunches. Although I have to say, divided apart, across say 15 million office workers, that does only equate to four extra packed lunches <laughs> a year. So there might, there might be a disconnect between resolutions and re- reality on this. Um, I, again, have looked for historical data on this and haven't found a lot. But I'd have to say this is a very, very plausible indication that fits with very basic economic theory.
1: Okay, let's move away from food and we're going back to fashion. fashion. Yes. Uh, this is the Hemline Index. Tom, what is it? This is the idea that uh, when
7: times are booming, when you're in the swinging 60s, the roaring 20s, up goes the skirt and you show a bit more leg and it's a more exciting, more fun time. Um, now, this is, this is in its sense counter-economic in that you know, when you've got more money, you can buy more material, but uh, apparently that's not how fashion works and it is <laughs> wearing more clothes that cover more of you doesn't completely correlate to the cost of a garment. Um, quite why it would be we don't know but desmond morris um that great anthropologist said exactly why females should want to explore mo- more of their legs when the economy is healthier it is hard to understand unless a sense of financial security makes them more brazenly invitatory towards
1: males so more brazen invitations please <laughs> okay uh, you don't pretend to understand fashion i'll tell you who does fashion editor harriet walker
4: It holds up in both ways. People have argued it both in both directions that long skirts um, are a sign of bad times, but they're also a sign of good times. Because if you are buying a long skirt, it means you have more money for more fabric. That's what people thought in the late 40s, early 50s when Dior unveiled the new look and used, you know, vast amount of fabric rather than what had been going on during um, austerity and, and rationing and caused quite a, a scandal. But I'm wondering whether I actually wrote in the newspaper this week that we're in a in fashion times Anyway, we're in a real trousers moment. And so we're actually kind of in uncharted territory on the hemline index because people are wearing fewer skirts than they were, say, even one or two years ago, where skirts and dresses were a really big, big trend. And the other trousers moments that we've had are, semi-depressingly, the 30s and the 70s. So the rise of fascism and nothing working. And I'm wondering whether this speaks to the moment that we're in currently. (laughs) Wow. Wow.
1: Now, is that is that is it a practical? A bit like some of the other ones we we're talking. About, is it a practical thing that if you obviously if you're wearing trousers, you maybe don't need to be go you know shaving as much, having your fake tan. You know, is it is there a a practical economic reason why you'd wear trousers over a short skirt?
4: I think with trends, it's probably always a reaction to what's gone before, and I think the trousers thing and has has really been driven by the cohort that we often call Gen Z, I think they associate skirts, especially those kind of ubiquitous Kate Middleton midi skirts with what their mums wore um, or what the people, horror of horrors, just a bit older than them wore. So they don't want to be seen dead in that stuff. And so the trousers that we are seeing in the shops right now a, a kind of very very big big jeans cargo pants real utilitarian stuff and it is the it, they are the trousers of a kind of survivalist i might say so maybe that's part of the mentality as well
1: so we've got it all wrong tom we're having a trouser moment are you having a trouser moment
7: um, i i am very very big on trousers at the moment um i have definitely moved away from miniskirts and i'm concentrating on trousers so that might indicate the rise of fascism in the whipple household um <laughs> i i would say i actually think this is quite there is good data on on the hemline index um not least well in, in um in desmond morris's book he did a skirts up skirts down study where he has a little figure of a lady for each year going back to 1936 and you see you see these going up and down with austerity there was a study in 2010 which looked at the pages of French fashion magazines and correlated the... They measured the, the height of the model's skirts and correlated it with economic conditions. And he saw quite a good... It's a lagging indicator. It's not a useful indicator. It seems to come three years after the economic <laughs> effects. But it is an indicator. Okay. Um, so I think this is probably, weirdly, the best validated of the ones we've looked at so far.
1: I wonder if there's also... Um, uh, if you are um, in tough times... And particularly right now, you know, heating your house is, is is more expensive. So wearing trousers is just physically more practical than a short skirt. And similarly, this going back and you going back to the thing about showing your legs and you know, maybe going dating and all of that. If you're going out, you know, socializing and wanting to look nice, then that suddenly becomes some, you know, that becomes a, an indicator of what you might be spending money on. We are looking at barmy barometers. Things which may or may not give us an indicator of how well the economy is doing. We have already looked at skirts, lipstick, and packed lunch. Now, what about the height of our buildings? Yeah, Tom Whipple, science editor, is here. Tom, what is the skyscraper index?
7: This is the idea that as we start to build record-breaking skyscrapers, it is a clear sign of man's hubris. And they they will inevitably be finished during or on the cusp of a big recession. So the more record-breaking buildings we're going to be building, uh, the more likely a recession is. And there, there's, there's economic reasons for this. You build skyscrapers when land values are high, when your companies are big, and when interest rates are low so you can afford to build them. And those, in a sense, presage the end of a period of growth. Um, now, we've seen you know, the Empire State Building completed just before the 1929 Wall Street crash i think probably most famously and canonically for this theory the burj dubai the world's tallest tower was not called the burj dubai because they built this sort of massive phallus in dubai and then they had a massive massive crash and it had to be bought out by their more sort of sensible neighbors in in abu dhabi and bailed out and as a consequence it now now bears the name that this, this great sort of was poking in the sky bear's name Khalifa, uh, the
1: guy who paid for it. So let's bring in the Times of property editor Carol Lewis. Is there something in the skyscraper index?
2: A little. Um, <laughs> 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 the shard, for instance, next yeah. door, that was commissioned in 2007 just before the global financial crash and completed in 2009. There hasn't been a serious contender to the shard, so it's difficult to know whether we can find an example now to see if we're about to drop into recession. Some people might
1: say we haven't had a boom on the same scale since.
2: No, no, but maybe we've got one coming because we've got a a contender to the shard in planning at the moment, one Undercroft. One under shaft, sorry, under shaft. And it's going to be slightly taller than a shard. It's going to start in 2026 and be completed in 2030. Where will that be? In the middle of that lot over there. they're
1: constantly building over there. And why are people still building them? Because I... There's nobody in them most of the time, now.
2: Well, this is a strange thing. A better indicator of the economy is something called the Crane Survey. Deloitte have been doing this since 2005. They count the number of office buildings being started in different cities. And 2023 was a record year. 43 new office blocks were started, which is amazing when we're talking about people working from home, not coming to the office and so on. But they seem to be, a lot of them are pre-let, um, people want new office, better amenities, more eco-buildings, smaller buildings. And adaptable
1: for people. Adaptable. Yeah.
2: But then they're going to leave a whole load empty out in Canary Wharf where we've got the biggest vacancy rates for 30 years. So I'm not sure it really proves the theory.
1: You were also just telling me about the sort of wallpaper index.
2: Yes. So in residential, um, during hard times, you tend to improve, not move. So it's a bit like the lipstick effect. You're more likely to stay put and redecorate
1: well there's a lot to unpack there tom is it where, where do you stand on all of that then tom
7: um so uh, there's there's been investigations into it and there's quite good evidence not surprisingly that skyscrapers do follow the health of an economy um and then inevitably when the economy is peaking it's in a sense that it's healthiest, so you get a lot of them it's not clearer it's not so clear that they really presage a recession however I did look through the 20 highest buildings currently under construction. And there are some absolute whoppers and loads of them, more than half of them are in China, which as I understand it is currently experiencing probably sort of one of the biggest property crashes in the history of the world. Um, so I, I think I think the jury's open on this. Well, I suppose that, certain... in a way, it
1: just, that, that's maybe more an indicator of the planning system rather than the economy. From the moment when someone says let's build a big thing to it actually being built, quite a lot can happen economically. Carol, lovely to see you. We've Thank got you. a lot of that. Uh, we, uh, right, let's move on from uh, skyscrapers to underpants.
3: Underworld.
1: Yes, Tom, what is the pants index?
7: This is an undergarment version of the packed lunch theory. If you want to save money easily, what do you do? You don't spend money on something that no one's ever going to see. So if you want to uh, have an idea of what's going on in the economy, and this was propounded by Alan Greenspan, no less, what you do is you look under the covers, you look at the men's undergarment theory, because frankly men don't particularly care about their pants anyway, so if they don't have to get pants, why would they? And it's, as I said, Greenspan has, uh, and there is evidence for this, uh, Greenspan said, look, this is this is one of my key indicators. I like to know whether men are buying pants.
1: Right. Well, who better to take us into the pants of the nation than Harriet Walker?
4: Well, I don't know about your household, Matt, but um, every man I know has is still wearing pants that he bought about 25 years ago. So I wonder whether... This is a sort of perennial issue, rather than anything linked to how the economy is doing. Um, is
1: it an excuse? Think- do you think? a Men saying, "Well, no, no, it's all—it's it's, a—it's a well-known theory. That's why I'm hanging on to them."
4: I think it's always been an excuse, hasn't it? Doesn't every mum still buy her fifty-year-old son a pair of pants <laughs> I, I I can see the logic of, you know, fixing the roof while the sun is shining and refreshing your pants drawer. Maybe, actually, as you're going into hard times, you want to stock up so you don't have to buy any more for the next 25 years. That would make more sense, wouldn't it?
1: So, apparently, according to Money Supermarket's Household Money Index, sales of mm. Y-fronts and boxes rose by 40% year-on-year year, uh, by September, whereas knicker sales went down by 47%. So, uh, pants up, knickers down.
4: that doesn't surprise me at all the knickers thing because i think at the moment i think when women are on a budget they buy stuff that people will notice or that will sort of give them a kind of quick feel good thing like lipstick um i think with knickers you know (laughs) not that many people are going to see them so they're just not a priority
1: right now apparently there's another fact which i didn't know but i feel like i've learned something men own 10 to 15 pairs of pants while women have up to 35 pairs of knickers I don't know what yes. to do with that information I
4: mean there are biological reasons that might point to why women need more knickers than men but perhaps we don't need to get into that
1: Times fashion editor Harriet Walker Tom how many pairs of pants have you got um, I haven't counted recently I have enough I'm, I'm generally clean
7: each day I think one can't ask for more than that
1: <laughs> no further questions you your it? right let's move on then the final one of our balmy barometers <laughs> What does the music we listen to tell us about the state of the economy, Tom?
7: Well, this is, you know, we are we are twisting and shouting in the swinging 60s. We're enjoying upbeat music. We are happy. Um, and then perhaps we move on to more depressing things when we're more depressed. Music reflects our mood. Um, to an extent, it changes our mood. But, but the, the idea is, and this is... This is something that is relatively well validated, I think, because it, you can measure beats per minute of of uh, a song
1: and Slight, slightly st- more easily than you can pants and lunchboxes. Well, in fact, we have got the top expert on exactly this uh, this question: the speed of music. T- Terry Pettijohn is professor of psychology from the Coastal Carolina University in the U.S. and explains his research.
6: We looked like back from when Billboard started measuring the success of the music from like the 1950s up through kind of current times. That's something to consider here is that we're looking for these trends over time. So it's really hard to pick a particular year and say that this explains everything in this year. It's more of kind of the up and downs over this long period of time that we're seeing. And then we're also using the social and economic statistics that are based on the feedback from an entire year. And it's based on like everyone in the country. So we're using things like marriage rate and divorce rate and murder rates and inflation and all these things kind of packaged together. I suppose
1: it's one of those things where it sounds amazing, but also makes total sense. That if society is experiencing uncertainty, gloominess, whether that is economic or geopolitics or, I, I don't know, health when we've seen with the pandemic and things. People, you know, although we all like to think we're individual and really imaginative ourselves, we all gravitate towards the same things. So what counts as a fast song versus a slow song? What's the sort of, what places us in a gloomy time speed-wise?
6: Yeah, so you think about the kind of songs that you'd want to listen to if you're going out and you wanted to dance. And so historically, you can go all the way back um, to the 50s and songs like At The Hop. hop, Or Sugar Sugar Shack. Those were like really fast paced songs, happy, celebratory songs. And then you see other songs like in the 70s, like My Sharona. That'd be another example of like a fast upbeat song or into club is more more common, you know, recently one,
0: yeah, 12,
6: or even like blinding lights um, from 2020 was a billboard number one hit. Ooh, and, and so those are the kind of things that you might see as, as the um, the popular when times are good. And then when times are bad, it's the slower songs like bridge over troubled water. Candle in the Wind, when that was redone after Princess Diana with Elton John. The out that was really popular, and you can kind of see some of the trends matching on to the social and economic conditions then at that time. Obviously, that kind of fit a slower, kind of uh, more comforting ballad uh, for those particular times.
1: So, what about then? If we look at the, the charts right now, number one in the Billboard Hot 100 is Loving on Me by Jack Harlow.
0: Now,
1: in the UK, it's uh, "Stick Season" by
4: Noah Kahan. They're
1: both quite slow, contemplative—if that's the right word—records.
6: Yeah, they're they're kind of more in the middle, but I mean, you can kind of see the slower element as opposed to an upbeat kind of dance mm. um, song that would go with that. I think something that's been real interesting that you've seen as a trend, though, is a lot of these kind of folk and country music artists that are kind of crossing over into uh, more mainstream. It's happened a lot. The Billboard Top Hits, uh, it was this last year, it was 2023 with uh, Morgan Will and, uh, and the Last Night song. That, last night that crossed over from the country charts to the Billboard Hot 100. And so you're seeing a lot more of uh, kind of these country influences that have historically been representations of like working class struggles, and uh, more kind of down to earth themes about, um, about hardships, about uh, relationships, things like that. And those are now being played out. And so that kind of might fit this narrative that we are recuperating from a recession and uh, people are identifying with these real life struggles that, that people are singing about in their music.
1: That's Terry Passage on there, from the Coastal Carolina University in the US. So, uh, Tom Whipple, science editor of the Times. We've got lipstick, pat lunches, pants, skyscrapers, hemlines, music. Which is your favourite Barmy barometer?
7: My favourite two are Hemlines and Music, because they're the ones that are really well-validated. I mean, weirdly, out of these, I think they're amongst the Barmiest, but we've got good data. I mean, they're not useful... (laughs) <laughs> um, because the M-lines are, are, are a lagging indicator so yeah. they can tell you what happened three years ago to GDP. And, uh, the, you know, the, the, similarly, the Songs one is, is at best contemporary, but it's really interesting that you see these signals. And if somehow we lost all decent economic institutions, then I suppose at least we could work out what has been happening to the economy in the past by looking through music and skirts.
1: Uh, Tom Whipple, thanks so much for joining us. Science out of The Times. Taking us through the the balmy barometers that tell us whether or not we're living in good times or bad times. I think we've broken the record for how many bits of music we can get in one half-hour feature, so well done, uh, Producer Lewis, for doing that. And if you've got any balmy barometers of your own, anything that you think gives us an insight into the state of the nation's health, wealth, finances or economy, then email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the environment editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.